Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Samuel Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the anthology White Sails Shaking, edited by Ira Henry Freeman. We're on the third story, and this is the fourth part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast. Or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week. Or, of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. 3. Seasickness is No Joke by Robert Douglas Graham Among the characteristics of so-called vagotonic seasickness are lowered blood pressure, listlessness, and a considerable indifference as to whether one survives. Nausea is the least of it. If Douglas Graham had yielded to his seasickness on his tempestuous trip of 1,400 miles from Newfoundland to Bermuda in November of 1934, he would never have lived to apologise for it, for he was single-handed in his 30-foot cutter, improbably named Emmanuel, with the rig crippled. He was 100 miles out in his reckoning and he was not fully recovered from six recent weeks in a hospital. Besides, he was 47 years old. But he made it. Not only that, but after taking a long rest in the Bermuda sunshine and finding one companion, he completed his round trip to England, three-quarters of the 8,000 miles having been sailed alone. Dr. Worth said Graham did indeed earn the Challenge Cup of the Royal Cruising Club of England. By the 3rd of November, Emmanuel had been ready for sea for several days. The mysterious pain in the hip legacy of my recent illness was gradually improving, though my normal activity had not yet quite returned, as was evidenced by my falling into the water while climbing on board from the wharf. After a morning of indecision, I decided to start. I got under way with three and a half rolls in the mainsail and middle jib, not really enough sail since Emmanuel missed stays and fouled one of the schooners alongside the wharf. One of her crew pushed me off, and I sailed away on the other tack, feeling rather foolish. An hour later, Cape Spear was abeam. As I drew away from the land, there were heavy squalls and a steep sea. Emmanuel pounded ahead, making rather heavy weather of it and taking a good deal of water aboard forward. The helm, as usual, was lashed, and I spent most of the time below. It got very cold, so I lit the stove at midnight. I was fairly wet and felt squeamish, but the wind seemed inclined to moderate, so that the motion became less violent. Cape Race was in sight at 2am, after which I was able to doze for short periods. When day broke, there was nothing in sight except the tumbling waves, and my ship seemed very small and lonely. The least exertion made me feel definitely sick. Those six weeks I had spent in bed had to some extent impaired my immunity. Most of the day and the following night, I lay resting in the lee bunk. November the 5th, the wind had been gradually backing to the south of west, and by 1am I could not sail within a point of the course. South, 32, west, true. At daylight I reset the sails and stowed below the anchor. Again I felt almost exhausted after this very moderate exertion, and I suspect I was not too physically fit. It was a lovely clear day, sunny and much warmer, but the sea was checking my progress, especially during the afternoon when the wind went light. 
All trace of seasickness had gone, and the motion being more easy, I was able to cook an elaborate supper of lamb cutlets, peas and potatoes. After clearing up, I shortened sail for the night and lay down to sleep. A ship's lights were seen passing several miles away. It was the only vessel sighted on this voyage. November the 6th. At noon I had only made good 52 miles in the preceding 24 hours, but later my progress improved, sailing four to five knots pretty well on the course. After dark there was a fairly good reception on my wireless set, and I was able to identify several American stations. The motion had become too violent for cooking, but I could boil a kettle and supped off bovril and shredded wheat. The weather had become so warm that for most of the day I wore only one jersey. During the night the wind gradually increased and at daylight was blowing a moderate gale. The jib had to come in and more rolls in the mainsail were needed. Then, pulling the staysail to windward, I hove to. I was very wet working on the forecastle, and I went below feeling pretty miserable, but thankful that the weather was warm. The lanyard of the topmast stay had chafed through, so I had to haul the jib halyards out to the end of the bowsprit as a preventer. I also got the sea anchor ready. By noon the glass had fallen to 29.4 inches of mercury and the wind was blowing a full gale and a heavy breaking sea. It seemed time for the sea anchor. I got up the second anchor chain and shackled it onto the drogue. Emmanuel has a standing chain bobstay which would be certain to chafe through any hemp hawser. Then down staysail and overboard with the sea anchor. The chain took charge and almost the whole 30 fathoms ran out before I could pass a stopper around it. The motion was far too violent to keep one's feet on the forecastle. The work had to be done kneeling or lying, with heavy splashes washing over one's body. One badly wants a third hand, but teeth came in useful for holding rope's ends. Then the mainsail was got down. This was an awkward job as Emmanuel was now lying well off the wind, and the gaff swayed away to leeward. After a sharp tussle, I got the sail secured with the boom lashed to the gunwale then back into the cockpit to see how she lay and what sort of weather she was making of it. This was Emmanuel's first experience of lying to sea anchor. It was not too good. She lay in the trough of the sea, broadside on, and heavy breaking seas continually broke over the cockpit, all the water finding its way into the bilge. The cabin floor was well awash and pumping an immediate necessity. Nothing to worry about except to keep the ship afloat. The water, swishing about in the bottom, was finding a lot of unexpected grit, pieces of sodden paper and other oddments which continually choked the pump, necessitating undoing the nuts and taking it apart several times. One sea broke into the cockpit with such violence that the steering compass and cabin steps were thrown into the cabin. It seemed very doubtful whether I should be able to keep her afloat, but the need for action, if only pumping, kept me from feeling too frightened. Some half-hour's work freed the ship. At 3pm the glass started to rise and the wind lulled. I got up the new jib as a riding sail, tack to the counter, head to the peak halyards and the clue secured forward. This kept the yacht's head to the sea and she rode the waves very well, but every now and then the jib flapped so viciously that it seemed something must carry away. However, everything held. The wind and sea gradually took off and I spent an easy night. At daylight I got in the sea anchor. It was heavy work at first with thirty fathoms of chain hanging over the bows, but later the chain came in with suspicious ease. The iron ring of the sea anchor had torn away, so that the bag had collapsed. 
all the morning was occupied by making a spreader for the sea anchor out of the boom crutches which I cut up for the purpose. The fresh meat had all gone bad owing to the warm weather, so for supper I opened one of the Newfoundland delicacies, tinned turs. This is a kind of seabird, but not at all bad. The ship made good progress during the night, but next morning, at daybreak, it was flat calm, and we rolled viciously. I fitted lashings and hooks so as to spread the dinghy's sail over the cockpit in hopes of keeping out some of the water during the next gale. Coming aft, I slipped overboard. I kept hold of the gunwale and pulled myself aboard again, and there was no real danger, as the yacht had no way on. At 3.30pm I made sail to a light southeast air which gradually increased so that by 8pm Emmanuel was again close-reefed and for most of the night hove to. A violent thunderstorm passed overhead, during which I secured a coil of copper wire to the rigging, leaving the end to trail overboard. November the 10th. At daylight, the wind had eased sufficiently to let draw and proceed on my course. From noon onwards, it was pleasant sailing weather, almost for the first time since St. John's. During the evening, the last of my lamp chimneys broke. This made the early hours of darkness rather intolerable. November the 11th. Wind was light from 2.30am and came east, moderate at daylight. The wind gradually increased and at dusk Emmanuel was close reefed. During the early hours of the night she pounded, spray swept through the darkness. Heavy seas broke on board forward and a good deal of water found its way aft. I had fitted a new strainer to the pump suction which gave no further trouble. I was loath to heave to when making good progress but soon after midnight it was blowing with gale force and the ship was labouring so heavily that I was forced to do so. There was a big sea running, and occasionally a crest broke against the side with a loud crash. At 9am I got out the sea anchor and set the storm jib as a riding sail, but this is not big enough to keep a manual head to sea. However, there seemed no immediate danger of foundering. Meals had been difficult. For breakfast I would usually make porridge, which could be eaten directly from the saucepan. Early in the voyage, I had opened a bottle of boiled codfish and in order to utilise it before it went bad, had eaten it at each meal for three days. 3pm. Wind was southwest, and Emmanuel was drifting away from her port. To lessen this, I improvised a second sea anchor out of the old staysail, which I secured with a bridle to my large warp. One corner was weighted down with the dinghy's anchor. I doubt whether it was very efficient. Next morning, found Emmanuel still afloat after another tempestuous night. No sleep had been possible, as it had been necessary to pump for 10 to 20 minutes each hour. The sail over the cockpit did not seem much good, but with daylight the weather moderated. After fortifying myself with breakfast, I hauled in the sea anchors. The staysail had gone adrift completely, and the drogue had burst beyond repair, so that was that. I made sail and tried to proceed, but it was too rough and I had to heave to until the evening. November 14th. Nothing in the way of incident occurred until just before midnight, when the roller reefing gear failed. The socket in the boom had worn so that it unrolled. Luckily, the wind was no more than fresh at the time. My rough log notes briefly set trysail, but this represents several hours of arduous work. The first operation was getting the mainsail down, a difficult job single-handed in the dark with the whole sail unrolled. Next, it had to be unbent, and mass of heavy, sodden canvas dragged into the cabin. I needed a rest until after this and made some coffee. Then I lugged the trysail from the spare bunk of the fore cabin, secured it to the gaff and boom, and finally 
hoisted it. November the 15th, wind continued all day from the south or southwest, gradually freshening with a falling glass. Obviously, another gale was approaching. I felt utterly discouraged and in no mind to meet it, completely worn out by the continual rough sea. The slightest exertion seemed a tremendous effort. Even to boil a kettle seemed too much trouble, and I lay in the lee bunk reading cheap magazines. At dusk it was again blowing so hard that I had to heave to. It was a frightful night, literally full of fright, as I listened to the seas crashing against the cabin sides. Every timber shuddered, and it seemed impossible that the hull could stand up to such a hammering. Once a especially heavy sea broke fairly on the beam, the yacht was thrown right on her side and flung bodily to leeward. Odds and ends were thrown out of the weather rack in the cabin and a notebook lodged against the ceiling on the lee side. I thought of Voss returning to port with the mark of his stove on the cabin roof. Cushions, a spare battery and other gear were hurled into the water washing about on the cabin floor. About 3am, when the glass had fallen to 28.9 inches of mercury, I heard the slatting of a sail. I jumped to the cabin hatch, just in time to see the trysail split across horizontally. Part flew aloft, tore the gaff from the mast and wrapped itself round the cross trees, streaming out to leeward like a huge banner. The other part of the sail gave one vicious flap, snapped the main boom like a carrot and collapsed overboard. At the same time, I noticed that the dinghy had gone, taking with it the lee runner. The wind seemed to be blowing with hurricane force, and I thought the flapping canvas aloft must pull the mast out of her. It was difficult to know what to do, if anything could be done. After a few moments' thought, I decided to get the staysail down and let the yacht drift. Crawling over the reeling deck, I forced my way forward through the blinding, stinging spray and hauled down the sail. The forecastle was like a half-tide rock, and I had to cling on for dear life to avoid being swept overboard. Extra lashings were put on the staysail, and the simple job of stowing the sail took some time, perhaps half an hour. I had not waited to put on an oilskin, though indeed a bathing dress would have been the only suitable rig. Getting back to the cabin, I found three or four inches of water on the floor, so this was really the end. I thought of the yacht's jesting motto, England is an overcrowded country anyway. It seemed to me coming true, but I did not feel like laughing. I pictured the water rising in the cabin, Emmanuel's last plunge, and those few awful moments choking in the black water. But, after all, many thousands of better men have been drowned before me, and I may as well make an effort. I started the pump. For a quarter of an hour it was doubtful if I was gaining on the water, and every now and then a fresh splash would wash over the cockpit. But after 45 minutes' work, the ship was indeed free, and my hopes rose. At daylight, the two stern horses were put out, and some three feet of the staysail was hoisted. I packed the cockpit with the remains of the trysail, which I had hauled on board, half the broken boom had gone, together with several other spare sails. Thus there was not so much room for the water when a wave slopped over the counter, Emmanuel then lay rather better. I have never seen such a sea before. Huge, rolling mountains with great valleys between, while every now and then the cross swells would cause a pyramid of water to rise up with almost vertical sides. Emmanuel was flung about like a cork, swinging broadside on when a steep sea caught her stern. But here is a point of interest. 
Unless she was actually caught by the breaking crest, it seemed not to matter which way she lay, nor actually how steep was the face of the overtaking waves. She lifted buoyantly to them all. Poor little yacht, what a wreck she looked. The remains of the trysail had blown away, but the gaff was dangling aloft, and the halyards and stays had wrapped around each other in dreadful confusion. The beading round the cabin top had been broken, and the canvas covering torn away. And alas, for the dinghy, there was nothing to be done. The sea looked so terrifying that I could not bear to look at it, and I remained below all the rest of the day. The day passed slowly, and I dreaded the dark hours. During the night the wind veered to north and northwest and gradually took off. Next morning, the 17th of November, it had gone light, leaving a huge swell in which Emmanuel rolled helplessly. It seemed urgent to clear up the wreckage aloft. I was able to get the gaff on deck and free the peak halyards, to which I secured the boatswain's chair. I secured myself to the mast with one of the mainsail ties, and then with an effort and some bruising, hauled myself up to the cross-trees, so that I was able to clear the throat halyards. After getting in the stern lines, I hoisted the big staysail abaft the mast, sailing to the southwest. November 18th. Light airs or calms all day. For the last few days, my rough log contained few entries. Reaching port seemed improbable, so that I had no heart to write it up. I was now about 500 miles from Bermuda and seriously crippled, with the continual rough sea, it seemed unlikely that a site would be obtained without which I should never find the island, even if I succeeded in reaching its vicinity. The prevailing wind was westerly, and I anticipated being blown helplessly about the Atlantic until food and water gave out in about two months. More than ever did I feel depressed after working out a site which put me ninety miles west of the reckoning. I seriously contemplated running for the Azores. Having lost the trysail, I could not heave to in the next gale and risk my mainsail blowing away. Already I had been economising on my water, and I had been thinking of how I might catch rain in a sail. November the 21st. For six days I had made no progress toward my port, but this morning a light air made from the north-northwest. I made sail, hoisting the topsail over the mainsail, which could only be set close-reefed without the boom. At 7am, it was blowing hard from the east, and the after-canvas had to come in. I felt the lack of a companion. With another hand to take his turn on the helm, the mainsail might have been kept on her, driving the yacht hard. However, Emmanuel ran very well under jib and staysail. The direction of the wind had decided my course of action was to run for Bermuda. At 10am, the sea was becoming menacing, and I put out the stern hawsers. The patent log, of course, had to come in, so that the distance run could only be guessed at. The following signal was made this day from Captain Blagrove of HMS Norfolk to the Admiral at Bermuda. At 11.50, in position 35.49 degrees north, 29.28 west, we passed a small craft, cutter rig, under foresail only, apparently all well with her. I never saw the Norfolk, but the position agrees closely with mine. I am glad now that Captain Blagrove did not attempt to communicate with me, as I might have made distress signals and abandoned the yacht. This message was published in the Bermuda Press. It was there blowing a gale, and it was not expected the yacht would survive. Noon of the 25th found me by reckoning about a hundred miles northeast of Bermuda. I got a very rough latitude, but my longitude depended on the courses and distance sailed during the last five days. Actually, it must have been a hundred miles an error. 
I decided to sail due south to the parallel of Bermuda and then steer west, true. This would give me the best possible chance of finding the island, though, discouraged as I was, it seemed a slender one. By 9.30pm, the wind had increased to gale force, and I had to run before it, steering west-northwest. I was past caring, and too tired to make much effort to keep her nearer the proper course. Bermuda lay somewhere ahead, and I might or might not sight it. I wondered what to do if I did not sight it. The American coast was some 500 miles beyond. I had no charts, but had once been in Chesapeake Bay. With luck, there was a chance of blundering in there, or I might try to work 1,000 miles to the south and find one of the West Indian islands. Both prospects were pretty bleak. Somewhere about 7am, I noticed the colour of the water looking queer, a lighter and rather sickly blue. Surely it could not be shallow water, but to my amazement, I saw distant, low-lying land ahead. It was incredible, but there was no doubt as to the reality of that dark ridge that showed against the horizon. But what about the reef? Now was felt the absence of a chart. In an hour's time, I should have finished with this long-endured knocking about, in safety or otherwise. I was so worn out that I was almost callous as to which it should be. But it seemed as if there was a duty to my ship not to wreck her after she had brought me so far and endured so much. Emmanuel tore through the water. The water was a very light blue, and what was the meaning of those dark patches? Ha! Huh. No doubt whatever, as the keel grated over the coral. I had sailed over the reef. Was Emmanuel to be wrecked after all? I could see houses on the shore, but I had no dinghy, and it was way too far to swim. I sailed towards the open sea, dodging the dark patches as best I could. The keel touched slightly once more, but slid clear, and it was soon apparent I was in deep water. I lashed the helm and retired to the cabin to get some food. Suddenly the blast of a motor horn sounded above the thudding of the spray. Rushing on deck, I saw a large motorboat close to the yacht. Wildly I waved a rope's end, tingling all over with the excitement and relief. I had won, after all. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast. And of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.